0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin Rice, and I want to share what I have learned in aviation both on the job, off the job, and what I have encountered everywhere in between. Story time. Back in episode four, I talked about when my student Corey went up for his first solo flight, and I, I reflected on that experience, and... You know that that lasting positive and, and incredibly rewarding impact it had on me and and of course corey as well but but what it really meant for me and so we were texting after i i published that episode and he had mentioned that i should do an episode about uh the time that we got stuck in the mud during one of our flight lessons together so that's what today's episode is going to be all about it'll be about a learning experience on both our parts and now that that day is long over, it's it's quite funny to, to look back on, even though in the moment it was uh, probably not something that I would have thought of as humorous at that time. But but looking back, uh, again, quite a learning experience, and, and it is funny to think about it and, and relive those moments. So after Corey's solo was complete way back in uh, towards his initial training. Again, it was probably the first few months of his flight training. Uh, the next step was to do some more maneuvers, and one of those maneuvers is uh, a soft field landing. Most pilots will go through their private pilot training, practicing soft field technique, uh, which is required per the regulations, and they'll even have to perform that on their checkride, their their uh, end of course test. But most will never actually land and take off from a, a real grass strip. So you, I mean, you can prepare all that you want for grass by by practicing the technique on pavement. But it'll it'll take some some decent practice to get proficient on actual grass. And in fact, I've I've never I had never landed on grass until I actually started instructing. So I was I was one of those pilots that never touched grass in my private pilot training, and as aforementioned, until much later, um, I think it was uh, yeah, a buddy of mine, uh, a buddy of mine, Colby, who got me involved in the flying club, uh, with the instructing gig. Um, I think that was the first time I went to a grass strip, uh, grass strip. So that was you know some two plus years. Uh, after I had started my initial flight training, before I actually went to a grass trip. So uh, I, I remember it was that first landing. It was it was a little freaky uh, that we were going to go take a, a stock Cessna and just land it on grass. But it works, and uh, those little Cessnas do a, a great job. And uh, Colby, is he's a friend of mine who is, is also in the airlines now, so I, I definitely... Uh, Got to get him on the podcast to to share his many stories and adventures too. So shout out to Colby for for taking me to grass for the first time. That's that's something I'll never forget. But back to the story with with Corey. Like I said, uh, Corey was done with his solo, so it was time for that soft field uh, landing and and takeoff technique. So I, I decided I I wanted to incorporate into his training that to make sure that he could perform perform both techniques on on pavement because that's what would be on the check ride but actually on grass real grass too so that you know for the purposes of getting through his training and passing his check ride he'd be able to do it on on a paved strip but for practical reasons you know he could go to a grass strip recreationally and and know how to properly do it and so that when he was in his free time or maybe he was taking his parents flying or friends or whatever that if they wanted to go to grass he'd know how to do it since he had done it you know, in training, instead of just kind of trying it on on his own for the first time, because it any time you're trying something new, whether it's trying a new aircraft uh, or going somewhere new you haven't been before, even though you have the rating, the the rating, and, and legally you could go there, it's it's probably a good idea to have an instructor with you. So that's that was kind of the mentality that that I had is that I wanted to make sure that when he was done with his rating, that he had been to grass. So um, I, I seem to remember that right off the bat. I, I was taking him to grass strips and, and he got the hang of it really well. Uh, I do remember him freaking out a little bit uh, on the first couple of times we went in and out of that grass strip, but, but I assured him that I too had that feeling, which was very true. Um, but once you build up confidence in the airplane and your ability uh, to get in and out of that strip, it, it's not too difficult with some practice. And, and sure enough, he became quite proficient as he did with all his other maneuvers. So in, in addition to soft field and short field landings, another maneuver required for private pilot training is a simulated engine failure or a, a simulated uh, engine failure with, with an approach to landing. Uh, there's different names for it, but essentially what it is, is it's pretty obvious. Um, you know, why, why we practice maneuver, it's, you know, what happens if our engine fails? Uh, where will we land? And it, it really all boils down to decision-making And understanding the winds and how far the plane can glide, given that there's no more power, Uh, you know, because your engine failed. (laughs) So as an instructor, I I get to be evil and say to the student, "Okay, your engine failed. What are you going to do now? And in that moment, I will pull the power back to idle to simulate that engine failure and then let the student figure it out. You know, granted, for the, the first experience with this maneuver, and 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 the same as any first-time maneuver, uh, is that I'll I'll demonstrate it first. You know, I'll I'll go through the motions to show them this is what you're going to be expected to do on your check ride, but also what you'd be expected to do in real life if a situation like an engine failure, a real engine failure, were to occur. So once they understand what I've done, it's it's now their turn. And uh, with Corey and, and with all my, uh, my other students as well, um, I, don't, I don't plan for this maneuver necessarily. Uh, I, I insert it kind of randomly in the lesson because just like in the real world you don't know when your engine's going to fail. It could be right after takeoff. It could be when you're just putting around in cruise. You could be doing a random maneuver and it could just fail on you. You know, the engine doesn't pick and choose a time and date when it's going to fail. If some malfunction happened, it's just going to happen randomly and you're not expecting it. So uh, typically what I would do is in the middle of a a fairly, um, a more stable maneuver, uh, if it was a a maneuver like a stall or a spin or or um, even a even a steep turn. I might not do it then because it's a little bit more involved but something like slow flight uh, or just simple ground reference maneuvers. Um, you know you could just pull the engine out or pull the uh, pull the power out the idle uh, to put it to idle and then just simulate that engine failure and just tell the student, yep your engine failed what are you gonna do at, at this point? So uh, again, it, it has to be random because that's exactly what it would be in real life. And so once the engine is simulated as failed, uh, the first thing the student needs to do is pick a suitable landing location Um, before even trying to diagnose the problem or figure anything else out. Step one is figure out the landing location and then put the plane in an attitude where it will have its best glide speed. So Uh, you, there's a speed that each aircraft, every aircraft has a a different speed, but the speed that you're going for is a speed at which your lift to drag ratio is best. Meaning that, uh, you're going to have the least amount of drag with the most amount of lift and every aircraft has a different speed. So that's kind of what you're doing. You're, you're getting to that speed. I think in the Cessna, it was 68 knots, I believe. And then you are finding a location to put the airplane down. Um, because if if you're not able to restart your engine, you're going to have to touch down. And so that's the, the first priority, kind of in tandem, is, is set that airspeed and pick the field. And there are, are, are various locations you can set a plane down. Um, but in order of preference, uh, we'll, we'll go for, obviously, a, an airport. Uh, if you happen to be flying right over an airport, well, that's what it's intended for. So land there uh or if it's a small strip of some sorts a lot of uh a lot of fields are actually charted even though they're private uh on our our vfr sectionals the the, the maps uh, essentially are our, our road maps for the sky um a lot of these airports even though they're private will be charted for the very reason that if we have an engine failure or something goes wrong you know we can pick a field and land on it and and it's an you know, technically a real airport even if it is grass or something it's it's a legit airport uh, you know that there's enough space but if there's no airport or, or a small even if it's a private strip the next thing I'd be looking for is maybe a field um, you know a farm field or something uh, and then after that uh, maybe the next thing I might pick is a road and then the last resort after that is trees or ditching in the water Uh, An airport is is obviously the best choice, like I said, because that's what it's made for. Um, But you might be wondering why I I picked a, a field over a road. And this is simply because uh, not all roads are the same. I mean, granted, not all fields are the same either, but uh, a lot of roads will have power lines running alongside or across the road. And those are incredibly hard to see. And you really won't see them until you're, hmm, at least down to about 1,000 feet above the ground, which you're starting to get very close to landing in an engine out situation at that point. So if you're up at altitude, uh, three, 4 5,000 feet, and you decide to pick this road, even at that altitude, it might seem low, but you cannot see what's going on with the road down there. And then in addition to power lines, there's, oh, cars. You know, that's that's a big, big deal. Now, you probably have seen on the news small planes landing on highways, and they do so successfully. And those are situations where the pilot didn't have a field. It was just trees or the road. And when there's a gap in traffic and it's it's an interstate, which interstates, eh, depending on the area, might have less power lines going uh, across them. They definitely won't have them going parallel to the uh, to the interstates. But a lot of those local roads you have to be very careful with because you'll have power lines crossing them and going parallel with them. I mean, they, they can be everywhere. And, and again, they're very hard to see. Uh, so typically, i uh, going to leave a road out as, as closer to a last resort. Uh, and as for a field, there are all kinds of different fields that you can go for. Typically, a, a farm field would be ideal because it's it's pretty spread out. But one of the, the concerns that you might have to think about is is if it's some sort of crop, um, like if it's a tall crop and it's in season near harvest, like a corn, Uh, some of those corn stalks can be pretty high uh, and that will be a bit uh, challenging to land in or tumble through. Now it's not going to be as bad as trees but it would certainly be quite a bit of an impact to all of a sudden go through a a big crop of corn Um, but a lot of cases if there's there's smaller crops you want to land in line with those crops so that you know when you touch down it's not like going over a bunch of speed bumps but rather going through some of those beds that all the uh, all the crops are going in. So that's, you know, some of the things that we look at is, okay, if you do have to pick a, a farm field, land in line with the crops. But those type of fields, particularly where uh, we did all this this flight training and where I was flying with Corey in, in Florida, is that there are these massive fields, and a lot of them will have these giant irrigation systems that go across it too. And that's kind of like power lines as well, where they're, they're not as high as power lines, but they're still these giant metal tubes that are in the air that would get in the way of touching down so you have to you have to think about things like this uh, so you might imagine that it's it's all about making the right choice and and oftentimes there's more than one good choice you might have a great road you might have multiple fields and some of those fields might be better than others but these all become you know really great discussions with students and, and honestly as, as an instructor you gain more experience with these different situations particularly when you practice the maneuvers in more than just one local area you know you want in order to kind of diversify your decision making when it comes to picking a field it's good to go all around the region and and just practice these simulated engine failures and and always and even if you're not actively practicing the maneuver Just to always fly with the mindset, thinking to yourself, all right, where am I going right now? Where am I going right now? Where am I going right now if my engine fails? And just kind of constantly think of that situation because you never know when it's going to happen. And like I said earlier, the engine does not get to plan at what time, what date, you know, when that engine's going to fail. If it happens, it's just going to happen. And so if you fly with that mentality of not, if it happens to me, but a matter of uh, of when it's going to happen to me, uh, that mindset will definitely help. Kind of uh, help plan with uh, particularly with that decision making and, and picking a field. Now I, I know that sounds kind of morbid, like oh you know my engine is going to fail, but it, it's it's not that. It's just that um, you know you want to have faith in your airplane, you want to have faith in the mechanics that keep uh, keep the work going on it, but some things are just out of your control and they could be any combination of things you know I'm, I'm not the mechanical type but um, I mean you could have a, a piston rod snap you could have a, a cylinder casing crack I mean there's all kinds of things that could lead to oil pressure fluctuations and, and then um, you know a, a pressure drop or something I mean there's there's so many different things that could happen that they just happen in life and, th- and that goes the same for any engine whether it's an airplane or not I mean things happen so just being prepared is is what we're all about when when it comes to flight training so that's that's where like i said you know just practicing these maneuvers these engine out maneuvers in various locations at different times and and when it's safe to do so you know utilize different types of stuff you know as an instructor you you could you could give the student an engine failure knowing there is nothing around except one particular thing so you you can kind of almost nudge or or urge the student to you know go to one specific field or go to one specific road or or you know you want to kind of tell them that hey you should probably go for that airport instead of that you know row of trees or something so it's that there's different situations where on both sides as a student and an instructor it's going to be a really good learning experience so anyway going back to the story in, in one particular flight lesson with corey I thought of a great way to, and I would do this with many of my students, but a great way to combine two lessons into one, and that is to give him a simulated engine failure near a known grass strip that I had been to quite often, and also uh, have him actually land using soft field techniques instead of just going around at at 500 feet above the ground. Uh, Because that's generally what we do for most of these simulated engine failures will have the student pretend as if they were about to land they'll get all configured you know if they get the flap settings in if they want the more drag or or you know however they're going to come into the field we want to make sure that okay if this engine did actually fail that yes they would be able to make it and and in terms of the regulations uh we can't be flying lower than 500 feet above uh even those remote areas so we we want to watch out for that uh, and mind that even the farm owners, you know, if they're doing machine running farm equipment out there and there's cattle out there, you know, we, we certainly don't want to be flying lower than five hundred feet anyway. So, uh, that's typically when we go around. But in certain, well, in in all these situations, you're not actually practicing that transition from. I think I've made the field to actually landing and experiencing what that's like to land an airplane all the way from up at altitude. And come all the way down with no engine power and actually touch down because 99% of all of our other landings we have power in all the way until about 50 feet or so um, before we're we're fully bringing it back towards idle on the touchdown. So in this situation, you're having to touch down with no power whatsoever. So that's that's what we did. I gave him a simulated engine failure. It was probably around 3,500 feet or so above the ground. And it was random. Uh, like I said before, uh, the engine won't decide when it's going to fail. So I think we were practicing some maneuver. I think we were doing slow flight or something. And I, you know, I, I pulled the power back and I said, there's a simulated engine failure. Show me what you're going to do. And so after a couple of turns, uh, he first he uh, he first got the airplane and the correct airspeed again, 68 knots in the Cessna. And then he started making a couple turns to, to look around and, and find uh something and he did find this grass strip that I was hoping he'd go for so that was awesome and then he he continued and and headed headed towards that strip and then started circling it and then he simulated what he would do to attempt to start the engine because like I said earlier the the very first thing we do is we set the airspeed to make sure it's that best glide uh to to the best glide ratio the the best uh, drag to lift ratio right uh, and then, simultaneously, you're picking a field, and then you're sticking with that field, and you're circling around the field. And then, once you've established all that, then you can start to troubleshoot and see if you can get the engine started. Because, you know, with these older Cessnas, well, all all airplanes have some form of redundancy, but uh, particularly with the Cessnas that we fly, or, or that I did fly, I should say, um, they had two... Uh, fuel pumps. One is just the engine driven fuel pump um, that just, it's attached straight to the engine. And, and as long as you have the engine running, uh, that it is creating that uh, flow of fuel to, to bring it from your tanks into the engine to feed the engine. And so if that engine driven fuel pump were to fail, you have a backup, uh, an electric driven uh, fuel pump. Now that one is, is generally off um, because it's, it's a backup. Now some planes, um, are you know just the the manuals will tell you to well turn this on uh during certain times like the takeoff the landing or when you're switching fuel tanks. Uh, but every every manufacturer is a little bit different, and how the system works can be a little bit different. But generally, these smaller planes will have that engine driven fuel pump and an electrically driven fuel pump. So again, it just you know in terms of the Cessna, you're one one of the things you can troubleshoot is okay if my engine driven fuel pump failed. I might be able to remedy the situation by turning on the uh, electric fuel pump as, as a backup. So anyway, that's just a you know one example of, of the, the things that the student would go through and, and what you would do in real life um, if your engine did fail. Again, you pick the landing field, uh, you circle it, you, you get your, uh, your airspeed on track, you know where you're going to land in the event that you cannot restart it, and then you do try and troubleshoot it and see if you can get out of that situation. And once I told him that all those attempts had failed to try and restart the engine, uh, I told him he would have to continue to land. And so he set up his high key point, which is about a thousand feet above the ground. And it's this location where you're a beam, your landing point in the opposite direction of your of your uh, of the intended landing strip. Um, And this is referred to as the downwind leg of the traffic pattern when you're flying opposite. And that high key point is a beam, your touchdown point. Uh, and so this is kind of setting yourself up to land, uh, just like a normal traffic pattern. Um, and so, again, at 1,000 feet, you're still descending uh, probably around 500 feet per minute or so. So at this point, you've got not much time left before you'd be, you'd be touching down. And he set it up beautifully. He had definitely had the field made. But I wanted him to show me that he definitely could make it. And like I said earlier, usually we go around at about 500 feet. But I really wanted him to actually land. So he started putting some flaps in and he slowed to approach speed. And then we started turning towards final. And as we got to that 500 foot mark, he kind of looked at me as if to say, are you going to make me go around or what are we doing? And I just said, nope, I want you to actually land from this power off setting. And, and just feel what it's like and so he did just that he came in a, a little high and a little fast on this particular approach But it was a longer strip as grass strips go. I think it was about 3,200 feet. So there was definitely enough space and oftentimes uh, with the soft field technique it, it does require just a hair more of than idle power just before you touch down in order to limit the sink rate because when you're going that slow adding that extra power will help increase your your energy so that you you will you will slow the sink rate and so the whole idea with the soft field technique is you're keeping the nose off the ground and you're you're limiting how quickly you're going to slam into the (laughs) into the grass because you don't want to do that Uh, a lot of people will get confused that soft field means you're touching down as softly as possible but it's it's not so much that it's more of keeping the nose up so that your prop doesn't dig into the ground and then um You know, and and limiting that sink rate so that you don't slam in. Uh, And mind you, this is all what I'm talking about, is all with the tricycle gear setup. Uh, I do not even have my tailwheel endorsement. Um, That is one thing that I do intend to get at some point uh, down the road. So perhaps I'll make an episode all about that uh, becoming a student again and and learning how to fly a tailwheel. But anyway, back to it with, uh, again, with arresting that sink rate with the engine, the, the simulated engine failure you don't have that extra power to help with, uh, you know, delaying that sink. Um, so if you just tried to treat it as normal, you'd, you'd come in a little bit quicker uh, in terms of your sink rate. You know, you'd, you'd be dropping a little bit quicker. So in order to compensate for that, uh, having a little bit more airspeed that then you can level off as you're about to touch down will, will transition into having a little bit more energy and, and can allow you to float and kind of work the plane in. So it does it does use up a little bit more space, but uh, not by too much when you're talking about a Cessna. So anyway, he he had to rely on that energy management with that little altitude he had left to create a slower sink rate and, and perform that, that soft field technique given having no engine power. But uh, Corey had, I remember he had a really great touchdown, uh, but then as we slowed down, I noticed that some water started to kick up onto the windscreen. And I, I heard and felt the plane kind of going through some sogginess. Um, it's kind of like if, if you've ever driven a car through a, a soggy grass field or something, it had just that squishy feeling and sound to it. And it wasn't too bad, but um, I, I did, I remember I told Corey, you know, make sure you keep some power in, especially for the taxi and the turnaround, because it's, it's quite a bit soft. And... The wet ground was it was a bit surprising to me because when we were up in the air, uh, it was it just felt like this typical sunny Florida day and, and it did not seem like the ground was wet at all. And oh my goodness, I was mistaken. Uh, the, the strip was was not very wide, so you you needed all the space you could get to turn around. And as Corey started this turnaround maneuver, I just felt our right wheel just sink into the ground and as per the title of this episode we got stuck in the mud and no matter what I tried uh wiggling the plane um you know adjusting the power settings we just wouldn't budge uh heck I mean I even put the the power at full and it was not enough to get us out of this this rut that we had created with the right wheel so I shut the engine down and uh, we just had to think we we got out and i remember uh, immediately my my foot got soaked up to the ankle cuz it was just this mushy kind of turf <laughs> and it was it was just this muddy grass kind of kind of reminded me of spring springtime in, in the northeast where it's uh, as we call it mud season where thing all the, the ground is starting to thaw out uh, and you have a lot of runoff from melting snow, and it's just this soggy grass. It, it kind of reminded me uh, of that. And um, but, given wet feet, I think that was the least of my worries because uh, the ultimate goal was okay. Now I got to get this plane out of here. Um, but uh, we tried to to manually push the plane and, and pull it out of its stuck position. But that right wheel was just sunk too far in, uh, and there I just we between the two of us we couldn't we couldn't do anything about it. But luckily, even though this was a very quiet grass strip with with very little activity going on, I, I think I was probably the one person who was going there the most. Luckily, though, even though it was a quieter day, there was a group of people, uh, I think there were three of them, who uh, in the distance, the other side of the strip, I saw walking towards us. And it just so happens that they were also pilots. And uh, I think they said they were driving by and, and they saw us out there in the mud struggling. So... Uh, they, they figured they'd stop in and check in, and I'm glad they did. Um, because they were the reason we got out. Uh, so with five of us, we were able to get the plane finally unstuck, but it still wasn't that easy. I was for a sec, I thought we would have had to bring a truck out there with a winch or something to, to tow us out because it was, it was some pretty um some pretty thick stuff. And again, with that that turnaround maneuver, this was towards the edge of the strip where a lot of the the drain off goes. And so it normally during dry season, uh, or just not a rainy day, it would be fairly easy to do this turnaround maneuver, even in a Cessna, but it was just, it was stuck in there. So, uh, it did take quite a bit of effort. And, uh, actually what I did, uh, towards the end there is I I started up the plane and, um, this is the first time I'd I'd had experienced this where I had people pretty close to the plane with the engine running um but we made sure to to brief it before that okay you know if anything goes on we got these hand signals and uh just to make sure you know safety first because you have, standing outside of an airplane with a propeller running is is it poses some some serious danger so uh but we we discussed it thoroughly and um, we were able to uh, to push us out and in in conjunction with using some engine power uh, and pushing the tail down to pop the nose up and, and then we were able to get out of that rut and then get the plane back onto the center uh, of the strip where it, it sits a little higher where most of these fields there it's it's crowned so it's a little higher to allow the drain off and, and that center tends to be a little firmer and, and yeah and the grass was just damp but it really wasn't too muddy there so Again, we got out, which was great, and luckily the winds were fairly calm. So instead of uh, back taxiing uh, the farther direction to to go back and, and take off the same way that we landed, which you know if there were prevailing winds that were constant enough, that's what you would have to do given the performance. But because the winds were calm enough, we were we were just able to continue the same direction and then uh, and then just turn it around on that other side instead of having a back taxi farther. So. Uh, that all worked out we got we got lined up uh, gave a wave off to the people who helped and, and thanked them very much and, and uh, we lined up and, and performed our, our soft field technique takeoff and and started our takeoff roll and I just remember it was still a little bit mushy and muddy um, and, and the ground roll definitely took a little longer than I was used to uh, since the last time I'd been to that strip but we got airborne and, and we still had plenty of room and we were on our way back to base, and uh, we got off the ground and all was well. But during that whole time of, of getting unstuck, I think the whole process um, from first realizing we were stuck to, to finally taking off again was probably a good hour of time that had passed. So it, it definitely, you know, weather can change in a matter of of minutes uh, in, in many locations, and particularly here in, in, uh, or down there in Florida. It had socked in a bit, and uh, we had some some typical spring Florida weather where you'll have some lower clouds come in because it's starting to heat up. You get a lot of the evaporation off the surface, but then that air rises and then condenses, and you can get these lower cloud layers, and uh, it was starting to get a little bit cloudy. And, and, you know, I, I had noticed the clouds a little bit when we first take, took off, but as we started getting back closer to, uh, to the airspace, to Daytona's airspace, I noticed that, you know what, I don't know if we're going to be able to get back visually on, under visual flight rules, uh, because typically going back into that airspace, we need to be at, at 2000 feet. Uh, but this was not possible in this, in this case, it was now, Uh, This broken and possibly even overcast layer right hovering at about 1600 feet. So I knew that I needed to get an instrument clearance to get back uh, to the airport. But before I even called them up, when we're still, I think we had leveled off at about a thousand feet just to stay clear of those clouds. Um, Before I even called them, I noticed a warning light illuminated on our panel and it was the voltage discharge warning. And so this meant that possibly our alternator was no longer supplying electricity to our electrical system um, or, or some something was going on uh, where we just were not getting that same power output that we normally do. Uh, it was lower than normal. And so we were now, instead of working off that alternator that would supply all the electrical power, we we're now working off the battery, uh, which would just mean it's it's a limited amount of time with working electronics. But luckily we were, we were pretty close at this point. We're probably only about 15 miles away from Daytona. So we were able to call them get the clearance and and um, and get that instrument clearance climb up into that bumpy cloud layer and, and we were at 2,000 feet uh, in and out of the clouds but you know I, I had that in the um, in the back of my or at least maybe on the front burner you know it's kind of it caught my attention uh, that that uh, warning light but then to make matters even worse or, or not I don't want to say worse but more interesting, one of our main and very important instruments, which is the attitude indicator, it, it started giving us some red Xs. It was kind of flashing on and off. Uh, and the attitude indicator, for those who don't know, it, it gives us a, an artificial horizon. It gives us our attitude so that we know which way is up or down, uh, which might sound silly, but when you're going in and out of the clouds, your body has no sense whatsoever what's going on. I mean, humans to begin with are, are incredibly visual creatures. And so if you take that away, it is very hard to know what's going on about your your surroundings. Your vestibular sense just it completely goes out of whack. And so... When you're in and out of the clouds, you you really have to trust your instruments, and when one of them is failing, that's not good. Um, But as many of you, I'm sure, know that within aviation there is so much redundancy with all the systems, so we do have a backup analog indicator that that runs off of a vacuum system powered by the engine, Um, so it does not use electricity. But you know, so we could we could technically have a a full electrical failure. Uh, but we'd still be able to keep the plane straight and level in the clouds with with no visual cues but but given that it's still not a fun thing to witness uh, and it it is concerning um, to to see that kind of thing happen so the layer of clouds was as we're getting closer uh, it was starting to break up a little bit but uh, you know having that main attitude display just kind of flash on and on uh, on and off was just not it it, it I don't want to go as far as to say thoroughly concerning, but it was just, you know, I, I was I was it was at the point where I was like, you know, what I think I need to let air traffic control know my situation just so they know what's going on. Because because at this point they have no idea, you know, I'm just a normal arrival coming back. And at this point there were a ton of arrivals. So uh, it looked like we were going to get lined up way out. Uh, and be one of the last to come in at that time. So, I mean, that airspace, for those of you who have who've flown down there and in, in the entirety of Florida in general, but particularly in Daytona Beach airspace, it's it can be very busy with the number of training aircraft uh, going on there. So it looked like uh, we were going to be a little while, and I just had some concern with regard to our voltage now draining and possibly having an electric failure. So I didn't want to get there. (laughs) And so what I did is I let them know our situation and I just requested a priority access on the approach. I was not declaring an emergency by any means, meaning that I was not in immediate danger, but I just wanted to let them know and and proceed with caution uh, and just get to the ground as, as quickly and safely as possible. And so even though I did not declare that emergency, Air Traffic Control did ask me this common phrase, how many souls and how much fuel on board? And what that means is that for their paperwork side of things, they are in fact declaring the emergency for me, even though I, I did not declare it myself. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean that that's totally fine because all of a sudden the 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 attitude on frequency it's it's completely different. You know, the controller was no longer just sequencing, you know, 25 aircraft in line to land with us being last, all of a sudden we were the ones who uh, that controller was paying attention to first. Uh, they, were, they were making sure that they're in tune with us and, and they want to get us all the need, uh, all, all the help that, that we can get, and anything we need. So a, a real big tip of the hat to that controller that, that worked with us uh, to get into land. I, I, you know, I've seen plenty of YouTube videos and heard stories of of uh, people having actual emergencies and, and just hearing of, of how helpful air traffic control is in these situations. It's, it's really great to actually experience that because a lot of us pilots can definitely get sometimes frustrated with, with air traffic control, but you kind of think about how busy their job gets and how much is going on with tons of aircraft going all kinds of different speeds. Uh, and, and for me, at least, I have a couple of friends who are air traffic controllers, so I, I, you know, I've chatted with them, and it's, it's just wild to, to begin to comprehend what they have to do when sequencing aircraft. So it's, it's just so awesome, uh, and particularly in this situation, when they you know, they put down everything else and they're totally focused on you, uh, when you when you need it. So that was really nice to have uh, in this situation. So they, they were essentially gonna sequence us as number one on this approach, but again, because we were in and out of the clouds, we needed that approach. We needed to go a little bit farther out to get sequenced in and, and straightened in with the, the, the approach to come back in and use all of our instruments for that. But as we're on the downwind getting sequenced for this approach, I all of a sudden saw a couple holes uh, in the clouds and I did catch uh, a good enough sight of the threshold of the runway. Uh, and so I think, I think we were about 2000 feet above the ground at this point, but I, I saw a solid, a good look at the field and I, I let ATC know, I said, Hey, I got the runway in sight and I'd like to, to cancel the, the, the instrument approach. I want the visual approach. I just want to get in. Uh, and so they cleared us. And I, I, uh, at this point I took the controls over from Corey and I, I pulled the power idle and I dove towards the runway just to get through that, that hole, get below that cloud layer. And I think, like I said earlier, um, it was around sixteen hundred feet or something like that. So once we we got below that layer of clouds, I leveled things out, and uh, I think I handed the controls back to Corey, and we had a safe landing. And and even after quite a series of things happening, we got on the ground safely. And I I don't want to say that you know we did anything wrong. Uh yeah sure there are a couple mistakes here and there but but saying that you know we did. Uh, things wrong, or that there were you know huge, huge uh, elements of risk involved with this flight. It it wasn't that at all, because at the end of this entire lesson, it was, it was still a very safe day of flying, and more importantly, because of of the things that happened, it was a a really great day of learning, and and when thinking back uh, about everything that did happen, I think the key learning points were this that. The grass strip was clearly wet and muddy so why was that well even though i mentioned it was a a nice sunny day the two to three days prior uh, we had seen quite a bit of rain and so that was the first thing that meant that rain accumulated and and got things a little bit soggy and secondly in the pre-flight there was some confusion between what we had requested and how much fuel was actually put in the plane Uh, It it ended up being full tanks. So, you know, I I should have thought of that and incorporated that into our lesson that, okay, if we have full fuel, we now have 100 more pounds of fuel than we normally do for these local flights. And so maybe don't go to a wet grass strip. I've taken a a full load of fuel on a dry strip before, and that's fine. But, uh, you know, that extra 100 pounds of weight... It can mean the difference between maybe getting stuck and not getting stuck. So that that was another thing to consider. And then lastly, when when the field is wet, that if you do end up discovering a, a soggy field, that gotta stay on the center line, um, which is which is typically that crowned portion of the field. And we did this for for the touchdown, but we should have stayed on that center crowned section the entire time. And when you're talking about a, a Cessna it does not have a very good turning radius. And so that would be virtually impossible to to turn attack uh, to to taxi a Cessna 180 degrees to turn around to take off or or to back taxi. It'd be it'd be impossible to stay on that crowned section with the turning radius that the Cessna has. So in that situation, if I was like, okay, yeah, it's really soggy, but it's still decent and firm on the the crown center, if we need to get out, you know, Get out and pivot the plane around, kind of like we had had done with with the help earlier. But you can definitely you could do that by yourself. But you know, with two of us, uh, you know, we could shut down, get out, and pivot the plane around, back into position, start back up, and take off, all without having to do this wide turnaround maneuver. Because that's the reason we got stuck is that wide turnaround maneuver meant that we were uh, away from that crowned section where the water had uh drained off to the side and created this much muddier soggy sections. so that was uh what really boiled down to the reason we got stuck but you kind of see it's it's this chain of events uh that happens Is like okay you know the we had a lot of rain the the last couple days we had more fuel than normal and then okay maybe i should not have uh pulled to the side to try and turn around so it definitely there's a couple things that added up uh, and those are just the the three things, like I said, they're they're really great learning moments, even though they you could think of them as mistakes, but they're they're great learning moments, not only for me, but but for my student, for Corey as well. And to reiterate uh, as before, uh, yeah, mistakes, you know, there's little things to learn from it, but nothing involved this taking, uh, or an unwarranted risks or, or attempting to be unsafe by any means. I mean, they they just happen. We, we learn from it. And uh, as for the electrical issue uh, and the attitude indicator malfunctions later, that was just dumb luck, or, or I guess rather the opposite. I mean, there, there was no cor- correlation between our encounter with the mud and, and those electronics. That, that plane just so happened to decide it was going to give us those problems after our adrenaline was already high from getting out of a mud pit. But because of, of the training and experience that I had under my belt, I was able to stay calm, cool, and, and professional, and, and get us back home with, with no issues. And at this point in his training, Corey had had already come quite far and, and was quite competent as a pilot. And so I, I've said it before that he was one of my rock star students. And, and if there's anyone that I would want to take a plane and get stuck in the mud and it would be him. So for my listeners, it's, I say the the moral of the story is check to see how wet the ground is before venturing out into the wilderness of a grass strip. Uh, definitely take into account what fuel you have for in your tanks. Uh, you know, if you got full fuel or half fuel and 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 make an informed decision regarding the, the day's lesson or, or trip. Um... You know, think about things like that, and, and in the moment, you know, like I said earlier, with, with landing on the center line, if it's, if it's wet and soggy, if you need to take up the entire strip to get it turned around, you know, shut off the engine and, and pivot it around, that's okay. You know, a lot of people will sometimes uh, think, oh, I got to get off the runway, you know, what if there's more people coming in? Well... Uh, in this situation, it's, it's a small grass strip, right? Okay, if it's a paved strip and there's lots of traffic, yes, there, there's no excuse to remain on the runway. We're always taught that get off the runway as soon as you can. But in that situation, you know, take your time. You don't need to quickly turn around to get out of there. And, and I think one of the other, the overarching things that can happen, too, when we're, when we're planning either lessons or, or trips or wherever uh, we pilots, we, we can easily succumb to this this mentality of, of get there-itis, and we really want to fly. Uh, but just remember that it's it's so important to have a backup plan. And sometimes that backup plan means that you don't go at all. Uh, you don't go flying. And that's that can be very disappointing. But we would rather be on the ground wishing we were in the air than be in the air wishing we were on the ground. And while that didn't really cross my mind when we were heading back, uh, I was certainly relieved we made it back safe and sound. And uh, we were out of the mud and, you know, again, air traffic control really uh, gave us a lot of assistance. Uh, we got back. I, I, you know, let maintenance know that, hey, we had these issues going on and and uh, it was just a, just another day. And we were done and back to flying uh, with a, a nice fixed up plane the next time. So, but anyway, that uh, that wraps up this episode of Clear for Takeoff. Thank you so much for tuning in. And re- remember, you can reach out to me on, on Instagram at PilotGavin or or head to my website, PilotGavin.com. Go ahead and leave a comment on this uh, podcast blog page. I always love to see the feedback, any of the questions you have, and, and any new content ideas as well. But anyways, thanks again for listening in to my Stuck in the Mud story. Next week, I will tell the tale of the most difficult check ride I've had. But until then, as always, fly safe.